Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. Each week, we'll discuss matters of importance that we covered and look ahead to what's coming in the legislature and in the Nevada Independent. We're a nonprofit news site that can be found at the NevadaIndependent.com. I'm joined tonight by our entire Carson City team. Riley Snyder, Megan Messerly, and returned from Miami with a cold, we're afraid, Michelle Rindles, whom we really, really miss. Welcome to all of you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, thanks. John. Good to be here. Thanks to all of you for being here. This is a big week up in Carson City. It's uh, what I have affectionately uh, referred to as the bill apocalypse, uh, where many bills have to die. Uh, on Friday. We should tell people that we're recording this on Thursday night. We know some things that are going to happen, uh, but we will tell you uh, everything that's dead and alive on on next week's uh, podcast. It was a busy week because a lot of bills uh, were moving. Also a busy week because we had our we had two of our uh, congressional representatives uh, speak. You're going to hear a little bit uh, from them uh, later on. Uh, Michelle wrote uh, a couple pieces this week about marijuana. We're going to talk about those. Uh, Megan had a great uh, a piece about some AstroTurf lobbying that's going on on, on, a, on a major bill uh, that's never happened. And I believe, Riley, you spent the week drinking. Is, is that right? Uh, well, smoking pot, but smoking you know. pot, of course. Okay, uh, but no, seriously, the, the the team has always did great work. We hope you'll go on the NevadaIndependent.com. So, some people who are listening uh, don't know what we're talking about, guys. In the sense that this is a big week. There's deadlines uh, coming up. The the the, the uh, legislature's a little more than half over, but the first bill deadline is you have to get a bill out of a committee of of, of the first house where where, where it originated. Uh, and Michelle, and you've you've boned up on all these rules, and some of them are kind of weird. Like bills can be dead, then they can be resuscitated. Some are what's called exempt. Let's tell people what's really going on this week. So what we've got is normal bills that will die uh, Friday if they don't get passed out of their first committee. But you've also got a lot of measures that are considered exempt because they have some sort of a financial impact. So they're just sitting in uh, in a Senate finance or Assembly Ways and Means uh, kind of indefinitely, and they don't have to, uh, you know, adhere to the deadlines. Then you've also got special uh, bills that can get waivers if the um, legislative leaders agree to give it a waiver, and it's just exempt simply because they want it to be exempt. They want more time to work on it. And then the legislative leaders also have emergency measures where they can uh, have a certain amount of bills they can pull out any time during the session and uh, present those, and they're not subject to the traditional deadlines. So there's a lot of other options, but the bulk of the bills from everyday legislators and committees do need to have some action bite on Friday. We're talking about hundreds of bills too. So even though there is, to some extent, there are these waivers and exemptions and emergency bills, if you don't have your bill alive at the end of this week, that can be a problem, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a ton of Republican bills that are going to die. There's, I think, four or five of Attorney General Adam Laxalt's bills that haven't gotten a hearing. Democrats control the legislature in case people don't know, and that's why that's going to happen. Yeah, and Adam Laxalt's a Republican, and he's, uh, you know, been talked about as a candidate for governor in 2018. So funny enough, you know, his bills don't get a hearing. But things get amended into different measures. Um, So policy ideas that die on Friday aren't necessarily dead for the rest of the session. Um, One thing, Michelle, maybe you can talk about that I didn't realize for a while was why do bills that are exempt for financial reasons, why do they get to live until the end of session? I think it has to do with 
them having to reconcile the budget. And you just don't know, especially, you know, before the economic forum tells you how much revenue you're actually going to get. Um, there's just no way to really know how, how big of a budget you're dealing with. So that, that the closings don't happen until later. Right. The, bu the budget is really what closes down the session. That's what will happen on uh, a little before June 5th and finally on June 5th. And as you, as you said, that's why they put these bills in, in, in the two money committees, Ways and Means and Senate Finance, uh, so, so, so they can do that. Uh, so um, uh, th there are other bills, though, that, that are floating through that, that are going to be uh, key parts of this so-called negotiations at the end. And you started to see some action on them. Uh, one of those is something that you wrote about, Riley, and that, that is the minimum wage. Uh, there was the bill that was introduced uh, on one side that would have done it gradually to $12 and on the other side to $15. And one of them disappeared this week. Yeah, so Assembly Bill 175, which was introduced by Assemblyman Will McCurdy, who is also the chair of the Nevada Democratic Party, I was heard in, I think, February. They had the hearing. You had the normal progressive folks saying this is the best thing ever. You had the normal business folks saying this is going to, you know, bankrupt the state and turn us into like a socialist paradise or whatever. So anyway, that bill is like just kind of lingered. There hasn't been a lot of action on it until this week where I, I got a copy of the amendment to it, which totally stripped uh, the $15 an hour ramp up in the minimum wage and replaced it with an interesting change. Right now, under uh, Nevada law, minimum wage is set at two tiers, $7.25 an hour or $8.25 an hour, and employers can offer $7.25 an hour if they offer health insurance. Now, offering health insurance or providing health insurance is what I think it says in the Constitution, has been like a legal question. You know, what does it mean to provide health insurance? Do they just have to offer it? Do they actually have to give a plan? So the new version of this bill puts a minimum. It says you have to have a, a plan equivalent to a bronze standard plan under the Affordable Care Act. So does it affect as many people as a $15 an hour minimum wage? Of course not. That's about a third of the state's workforce. But there are about 44,000 people in the state who are stuck between $7.25 and $8.25 an hour. So it would impact them. Of course, when the bill got passed out of committee this week, all the Republicans voted against it. Uh, but I think this is a much more palatable thing for the business community, Republicans, and most importantly, the governor, because he's the one who has to sign this eventually uh, to get their hands on. Uh, the governor has signaled, though, that, that he's not too too thrilled with any minimum wage bills, but it's clear that this is a big priority uh, for the Democrats. And and it's interesting because, uh, uh, Megan, maybe, maybe you can talk a little bit about this. It seems to me that this week you really see much more uh, uh, activity, uh, uh, not just in the committees, but among the lobbying corps, because they know they, this is like a do-or-die week, right, for some of their uh, uh, bills that mo most people listening to this really don't even know that are out there. I said, as I said, there's hundreds of bills, but they're, they're important public policy uh, uh, issues that could live or die based on what happened uh, on Friday, right? Definitely, yeah. And I think I think all of us have seen this week, you know, sitting in committee hearings and sitting through, you know, countless work sessions, sort of these, you know, lots of changes that are happening and, and sort of everything happening here at the last minute. Bills, you know, changing substantially, like Riley mentioned. Um, for instance, I was in Senate Health and Human Services earlier this week, and uh, Senator Pat Spearman had a Medicaid for All bill. It also had some other provisions codifying certain portions of the Affordable Care Act in it. Um, but that bill changed substantially. It went from this bill that would have allowed sort of anyone uh, to buy into the state's Medicaid plans. So you'd pay a certain premium and be a part of Medicaid instead of receiving subsidies like everyone else who's on Medicaid. Um, and instead, it changed that bill into a study of what it might look like to do that plan. So you have these bills changing very drastically, you know, from something that would actually implement this proposal to, well, now let's just take a look at it. Now let's just study. So there's often a lot of 
of very significant changes happening at the end and everything's sort of happening during the committee hearing. You know, they're saying, we'll take this part of this amendment. We're going to leave out these two bullet points and that's what we're passing. And so really, if you're not there, it's, it's kind of hard to follow and know exactly what's going on. It's hard to follow even if you're there. <laughs> I don't know if they half the time know what they did to the bill after they're done with it. So. Because it happened so fast. Is that why that is? They are combining multiple mm-hmm. amendments into yeah. one and trying to pass it out. And yeah, there I don't is- think they see if it truly jives together. So yeah, yeah, I know um, it, uh, this afternoon in Senate Revenue and Economic Development, there was a bill having to do with fuel taxes and uh, smaller counties. And, you know, there was this one amendment and they took the first two bullet points from that. And then the Nevada Taxpayers Association had a separate proposed amendment. And so they said, OK, the first two bullet points and the Nevada Taxpayer Association's amendment and the bill, that's what it's going to be. And we're voting on it now, you know, and so you have a lot of these things sort of happening verbally and with conceptual amendments and a lot of it's sort of, you know, up in the air and kind of hard to follow. Well, so we start knows? our band, we're going to call them the, the, the conceptual amendments, right? That's the consensus. <laughs> That's one of them. We have conceptual multiple. Is a great name for a band. <laughs> yeah. have, you, have you trademarked that yet? I don't think so. We have a few more ideas, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, we do. Let's hear them. Do you remember them? You're putting me on the spot. Okay, well, stay tuned to our podcast for future <laughs> band names. We, we definitely need uh, to, to get to those. There's another uh, uh, bill that uh, we wrote about this week, uh, and, and all of you can chime in or, or anybody who wants to, uh, which goes to something you talked about, Riley. And this was uh, Adam Laxalt, who is the attorney general, has complained that the, his bills aren't being heard and the Democrats are pilfering his ideas. But there apparently was a compromise that was finally worked out between the attorney general and something he's talked about in his campaign and has been a big problem in this state and other state, which is the rape kit uh, backlog, the Democrats' ideas, the attorney general uh, had ideas. Who wants to talk about that? I mean, I, I listened to the hearing, but Riley knows a little bit of some of the backstory. But um, essentially, there was uh, a bill, and it would put certain, you know, regulations. It would put a time frame on the period in which these rape kits, which are sexual assault forensic exam kits, they're these evidence that's collected in the wake of an alleged sexual assault, typically by a nurse or a doctor. They collect this evidence to, to preserve it in case the person decides to press charges. Um, so basically, this this bill um, put forward by the attorney general's office would put a time frame on how quickly you need to test those kits after collecting them. Um, at the same time, uh, Assemblywoman Teresa Benitez-Thompson had a bill um, that would also do something very similar. So they ended up hearing uh, both of those bills earlier this week together in conjunction. And uh, the Attorney General's office, uh, Wes Duncan, was there and Assemblywoman uh, Teresa Benitez-Thompson, and they were presenting together. And they came up with this uh, conceptual amendment to the bill, which ended up changing one of the major provisions, which would have required um kits to be tested 180 days from when they were received by a lab. Um, A lot of the law enforcement agencies, in particular uh, Metro in Las Vegas and the Washoe County Sheriff's Office, each of which has their own crime lab, uh, they had significant significant concerns with it um, because just because of their resources. And they were afraid that if they had this requirement to test every kit in their lab within 180 days, that means that they wouldn't be able to prioritize other evidence. You know, they're not just processing rape kits, they're processing evidence for, you know, every single kind of case imaginable. Um, And so they were concerned that they might not have the resources to do that. And so they ended up taking the 180-day provision out. Um, But at the end of the day, you know, everyone sort of got to come to the table. You know, the attorney general's office did get to be there and and be a part of the bill and part of the discussion. Um, And so they presented this uh, sort of, you know, ramp back version of the bill that just requires, you know, kits to be submitted within a certain time frame and then also has increased reporting requirements about how many backlogs 
backlog kits, you know, are on hand and how many kits still have to be tested and how many they've gotten through in the last calendar year. So it does sort of increase transparency in that regard. Yeah, we, I think you and I had a conversation about this uh, uh, this week, uh, Megan. This this whole thing to me, and I think the people listening, it's just utterly horrific to me. There, there are all these, and this, uh, this is true in other states too, they have this horrific backlog of rape kits. And then you talk about 180 days, and I think people are listening, 180 days, let's do the math, six months. Uh, I mean, for them to have to take that long after such a heinous crime has mm -hmm. been committed and, and to have all of this backlog, uh, something's wrong. What's wrong? Sure. And for, I mean, survivors of sexual assault, you know, a, a lot of people want, you know, want their kits tested. There was also just over time, not a lot of knowledge about the evidence that these, you know, kits could offer. Um, you know, people thought, oh, well, if you know who your accuser is, why do you need to test the kid? And it's only sort of recently that people have realized the benefit of, well, you may know who your accuser is, but what if your accuser, you know, something else happened in, in Minnesota? And so by testing the kit, you have that DNA evidence. It's put into this national database, which then, you know, say the person in Minnesota, you know, didn't know who, who, you know, who, you know, who was their perpetrator. Um, and now you're able to put that into the database and, and sort of put two and two together. Um, so there wasn't a lot of knowledge and there weren't conversations happening about this until, you know, a couple of years ago. And now it's sort of become um, a national discussion. And there have been a lot of grants offered both through the DOJ and the New York District Attorney's Office has this grant that they granted different jurisdictions. Um, Metro and uh, Las Vegas got it to help go through some of their backlogs. So it's just been a broader discussion now. It They've also a, been able to lower the price because I think it was something mm -hmm. like $1,500 to test yeah. these kits. Yeah. They negotiated through the New York uh, district attorney and, yeah. and it's something like six seventy five a kit. So yeah. they've been able to really make it more affordable. And by, yeah, and by testing in bulk, so they've contracted with a particular crime lab and what that allows them to do is normally it costs about 12000 or 12000 1200 to $1,500 to test each kit and they've negotiated that down to six twenty five to be able to test them in bulk. Um, so, it, I mean, it is a significant cost savings when they're trying to get through, you know, literally thousands of kits. At, at the worst, it was roughly 8,000 kits in Nevada that were untested. Mm -hmm. And it really became like a big issue, I think, at the tail end of 2014. And uh, those survivors of the 2016 campaign can remember a few ads that were run against Catherine Cortez Master that had to do with rape test kits. And, you know, Laxalt, to his credit, has gone out, uh, secured grant funding, settlement funding. They got a state law passed in 2015 that allowed them to use settlement funds for specific purposes, which is where they're getting, I think, like $5 million for rape test kits. So they've, you know, they've done their work and they've amassed a lot of, you know, funds that weren't there beforehand to go ahead and get these tested. You, you mentioned that, and just in case people don't know, Catherine Cortez Masto, who is now a U.S. senator, was attorney general before Adam Laxalt and got pounded on this. I think there was, if I remember correctly, and I know, I, I know you'll correct me if I'm not, rather, there was some meeting where she appeared to be unaware of this issue, right? And then they played that a clip from that. It was a some legislative meeting or something like that. It was that. an interim meeting, and actually, it was an ACLU guy who asked her, you know, I saw this story in the Review Journal. Have you heard of it? And she said no. And then, of course, that part was clipped and um, became a political ad for a couple of weeks in the tail end of 2016. What strikes me about this, and I do want to move on, but I do want to talk about this and maybe toot our horn a little bit here at, at the Independent. This is one of those kinds of public policy issues that has a lot of nuances to it, right, that you, that you guys have all just talked about, cost, time frames, uh, all the rest of it. And there's so many of these issues, right, uh, uh, that, that, that are not high on the regular person's radar screen. But that's what's going on in these committees now. And to some extent, like this is an issue that actually seems like they hashed out all of the public policy involved. But some of the other ones, right, they just go so quickly that they, they and, and then the laws that are formed out of it, you know, they realize after the only 120 days, which is not that much time, suddenly they've passed something and they haven't hashed it out. And we're talking 
hundreds of bills, uh, and not everyone has all the, all these kinds of nuances to them, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the other band name we're going to do from the legislature is Unintended Consequences, which is what they bring up. That's another, every that's meeting. another great uh, band name. But I, I do want to say, just in case, since this is not a visual medium, that all of the reporters were nodding in, in, in assent to what the editor said, <laughs> which is always, which is always a, a, a good thing. Let, let's talk about the, some, something else uh, that, that, that happened this week, and, and I mentioned it earlier. Uh, we had uh, two first-term uh, Congress folks come and speak to the legislature. This is some uh, bizarre tradition where the folks from the delegation come and give a speech to the legislature and never say anything much except to talk about all the great things they're doing and how much they miss their friends in Nevada and it's good to be home. I think every single one starts with it's good to be home. Does that, is that right, Riley? Do I remember that? I believe so, unless it's, you know, Harry Reid who didn't show up in 2015 because he didn't care. But. <laughs> That's right. Well, that, that, that is Harry Reid. So let's let's talk about uh, each of these. Um, uh, let's talk about Ruben Keewen. He, he, gave, the, he gave the first uh, speech. Uh, to, let's talk about what he had to say, Riley. Did he say anything? Uh, he said a few things. It was very similar to his campaign speech. You know, there's we all cover the 2016 campaign, and we've heard a few of those lines before. He did mention a few of the bills that are before the legislature. He made fun of, not made fun of, but he criticized the governor's um, educational savings accounts program, a quasi-voucher. He was only a for, few feet away from the governor, too, when he was saying that, right? The governor was sitting right there. In the front row, yeah. yeah. So that must have been a little awkward for the governor. Yeah, right. Um, but it was mostly, you know, rhetoric, not a lot of strong policy stuff. I don't know if it's the time and place for that. It's just uh, talking to the legislature has never, I think, been big on like, it's never been like the place for big announcements. Um, and we actually got the chance to talk with Congressman Keewen after the speech where he maybe revealed a little bit more. Um, uh, I asked him, and we can play this recording, uh, about his position on Syria Look, um, as I said in the statement, um, I support the efforts uh, that the president, uh, uh, of the actions that the president took. Um, you know, look, it's, it's a travesty what they're doing to the people uh, in Syria. Uh, and, um, you know, what I do believe, though, is that uh, moving forward, um, that uh, President Trump needs to come back and in front of the legislature, uh, articulate exactly what his plan and his strategy is moving forward. Um, I, I believe right now at this moment he doesn't have a strategy. Uh, and I would be more than happy to cut our two-week district uh, week um, to go back into session uh, and deal with the situation. Uh, but again, my biggest concern is that the president does not have a strategy. And uh, moving forward, before taking any further action, I believe that he needs to come back into Congress and explain to us what his strategy is and get Congress to buy in on it. So again, that was Congressman Reuben Keewen talking about the Syrian airstrikes last week. And he went a little further than he did in his public statement. He said he thought it was the right move for President Trump to make. But he, like every other member of Congress said, President Trump needs to come before Congress and, uh, you know, give an actual plan on what he plans to do in Syria. And I believe he said that uh, the president doesn't have a coherent strategy on Syria. This is rhetoric you hear from a lot of Democrats. Uh, but, you know, it was good to get him on the record saying that he thought um, that move, which a lot of Democrats criticized, I think Barbara Lee, uh, I might be in the name wrong, California, said that was the wrong decision to make. So, um, yeah, like we're, we asked him that. You can go on NevadaIndependent.com and watch the full interview. Uh, it's on our YouTube page as well. He also grabbed uh, uh, Jackie Rosen, uh, the, the freshman who, uh, who took Joe Heck's seat, um, uh, and uh, did she have anything to say? 
She had a few more things to say than uh, Congressman mm-hmm. Keown. We spoke with Congresswoman Rosen, who uh, before 2016, for people who don't know, had never run for office. She beat Republican Danny Tarkanian in a very close race. She's one of a handful of Trump Democrats, meaning she won a district that Donald Trump won. And so one thing I wanted to ask her, and it's the same question I asked Congressman Keown, was do you support a single-payer Medicaid for all system? It's an idea that's kind of gained a lot of traction on the left. The current version of the bill, I think, has 60 or 70 co-sponsors. Uh, another Nevadan, Dina Titus, has co-sponsored it. And so I asked her her position, and this is what she said. Well, what my interest in right now is fixing the Affordable Care Act. Overwhelmingly, in the state of Nevada, the Affordable Care Act has worked for us. In my district alone, 30,000 more people have uh, taken the Medicaid expansion. It is working for us in so many ways. Our premiums are good. Uh, We're able to take care of our citizens. Our hospitals are happy. Our pharmacies are happy. Our patients are happy. The other thing that I'm worried about with uh, President Trump's repeal and replace is the age tax. There's a tax for people between the ages of 50 and 64. I believe that puts an undue burden on people of that age group who, as of course, when you're young, you're you're healthier, typically. So the older you get, the more health care you need. So to put an age tax on those people when they're getting older and sicker, I don't think is the right thing. My focus right now is trying to avoid the repeal. We want to mend it, not end it. That's what the calls are to my office. Everybody I speak to, that's what they want. That's what I'm going to work on. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned the, the effect the expansion of the Affordable Care Act has had on Nevada, but mm-hmm. we still have a large population of people who are uninsured in the state. I believe it's between 15 and 20 percent. Is the answer to that a move to a single-payer system, or what other sort of fixes need to be made to the ACA to cover people like that? Well, I think we need to look at the ACA as a whole, and we know what's working really well, keeping the pre-existing conditions, allowing for preventative care, uh, not charging women different prices just because they're women. So those things are working well. Some of the things that aren't working, we need to look at the Cadillac tax, the medical device tax repeal. Perhaps we need to talk about what's working, not working with uh, drug prices. So I'm a systems analyst by trade, so I see how we break things apart. So I want to strengthen what's already there, the 10 essential benefits that are working for people. Find out why it's not working for some of those folks here in Nevada, because I care about Nevada, number one. And then I want to break that down into their subsequent issues and see how the best way is to tackle it. Like I said, as a systems, you can't take the systems analyst out of the congresswoman. That's how I approach a problem. Mm -hmm. That's how I want to approach this one. So uh, we'll look at some of the fundamentals there um, and and go from there. So do you plan to co-sponsor that bill? The Conyers bill? Yeah. Not at this time. I'm working on trying to do, I'm working on what's going on right now with the repeal. President Trump, they're doing a lot of midnight deals with the Freedom Caucus. It's going to hurt Nevadans. It's going to hurt people across this country. And I don't want to see that happen. So I'm focused on what's immediate, what we can do right now, what we should do. Again, that was a Congresswoman Jackie Rosen talking to her about her position on Medicaid for All. She said she wouldn't co-sponsor that bill. Uh, Congressman Keewen, the day before when we asked him, was a little bit more uh, hesitant, but it, they both said their main priority is protecting the Affordable Care Act, making changes there, uh, which is an interesting contrast to uh, uh, Dina Titus, who's been mentioned as a potential Senate candidate, someone who's running statewide. But again, she's in a much safer district than those two who are in more swing areas. So yeah, and Jackie Rosen's really going to be targeted uh, next time. There's no, there's no doubt about that. Probably Ruben Keeman will, will be too. But Jackie Rosen is going to be one of the top 
targeted seats, uh, I, I would think. I think these speeches, though, are just remarkable for how little news they generally make. I think Harry Reid, who you mentioned earlier, is the only one who's ever made news here by coming uh, uh, here and saying that we should outlaw prostitution, uh, as, I, as, as I recall. So, okay, that was, uh, uh, I don't know if it's fair to call them highlights of the week, uh, Riley, but it was a little, little change of pace uh, during, the, the, during the bill apocalypse uh, week. So uh, I mentioned earlier, Michelle, that, that you have a couple of stories uh, about uh, pot uh, uh, th th this week. And the first one, and, and I know Megan and Riley have covered hearings. There are so many pot bills. You actually f figured out how many there are and, 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 and talk about how different they are. How many pot bills are there? There's 23 of them. Uh, that's how many the marijuana lobbyists are tracking right now. So um, you know, there's a lot of overlap between them. There's multiple bills that deal with marijuana massages and multiple that deal with hemp research and all sorts of stuff. Um, one of the ones that stands out to me is one that would allow pot lounges. Um, because question two doesn't allow you to publicly consume marijuana. So That's I guess the one that legalized marijuana in case people don't know. So pretty much your only option is to do this in the comfort of your own home, um, and you're not really supposed to be doing it on the streets or at a special event. Um, so this would allow, say, you know, a, a music festival to get a permit from the county and to have, you know, people smoking pot at the, at the event, um, or to have like an Amsterdam-style pot cafe. Um, so that's one of the, one of the ones that's up, uh, but there's a lot of other ones. There's, uh, some bills about packaging marijuana and that we don't want it shaped like a fruit or a, an animal so that it's appealing to kids. And we want brownies to be an opaque packaging. So there's just a whole bunch of stuff going on, uh, this session with marijuana. Now, is, is Tick Segerblum the sponsor of every single one of these bills? <laughs> it seems like it. There's a couple others that got in there, but. Uh, yeah, I think he really enjoys working through this issue, um, bringing it up whenever possible. I mean, there, there are pot, there, there's like a pot bill hearing, it seems like, every day. Is that just me? Is, is, is there one going on? That's true. It, it, it came up today and mm -hmm. multiple times. Yeah, it did. Yeah, it was up again. We talked about it a little bit on the podcast last week, but all the, you know, pot tax bills, um, you know, they do a lot of different things. And it came up again today. Uh, with the governor's, you know, 10% excise tax on recreational marijuana that got punted over to Senate finance. So that'll keep on keeping on as that discussion continues. Well, yep. just, just so people realize this, Megan, when you say got punted to Senate finance, yeah. that's because it, there's, there's a big fiscal note on sure. that. Mm -hmm. And so and so that is not going to be resolved until no. probably the last few days, right? Well, and there's some questions, you know, obviously the governor has made it clear that this is what he wants and he wants that 10% to go to the distributive school account. But as people might remember, um, Democratic Senators Julia Ratty had a proposal to send some of that money to law enforcement and local governments and whatnot. So the question is, you know, do we want to keep it at 10%? Could we bump it up a little bit higher? If we did, where would that money go? So those discussions are all still continuing and will continue, you know, on, you know, probably till the end of the session. They expect that with the amount of, in Oregon, when they moved from medical marijuana to recreational, it was five times more business coming into these places. So I, you know, it's, here's a new, completely new revenue stream. And so I think a lot of people are trying to explore how they can get a slice of that for whatever they want to what project they want to do. You heard about that earlier, Michelle, correct, about what happens to medical marijuana in a world where, you know, we can have recreational marijuana and not to suggest anyone who has a medical marijuana license is doing it for recreational purposes. 
But there are a lot of proposals out there about what happens to the medical marijuana program in the future, right? Yeah, and um, some of them actually totally remove all fees because you do have to apply for a card every year and you have to pay substantial fees, take a lot of time, do a lot of paperwork to get your medical marijuana card. So one of those bills is just completely erasing all the fees. Um, there's a lot of bills adding new conditions that would qualify for a medical marijuana card. And it seems like where we're going is um, to just have those two taxed differently, have recreational taxed higher and give a, people a little bit of an advantage if, if they're using it for a medical condition. Riley, are you aware of what a marijuana massage is? Uh, but if you let me expense it, I can probably tell you a little bit more, John. <laughs> <The> expense it. <laughs> what about nonprofit? Do you not understand? <laughs> so let, let's let's talk about some other uh, um, bills that came up the, uh, this week, and uh, you guys can weigh in on this. We started seeing some of the major education bills come up too, and, and there was some talk that this is the time when the Democrats and maybe their allies and the teachers unions are going to try to reverse some of the quote unquote reforms. They don't like calling them reforms. Read by three and some some of the other. Uh, special kinds of, 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 of schools, uh, and, and the governor generally doesn't signal what he's going to do uh, on bills. It's hypothetical, and we always get those press release, those, those statements from his press secretary. What's going on on that this week? Who wants to weigh in? Well, uh, yesterday there was a bill hearing for uh, to alter the Read by Grade 3 program, and that program puts millions of dollars, I think the number was $30 million, last biennium, um, into programs that advance literacy for, you know, first through third graders. Um, one of the th controversial parts of that bill was that starting in 2019, once these reforms have had a chance to take effect, um, they would start holding kids back uh, if they could not read at grade level by grade three. Um, and it was a very strict line in the sand. And I think the way they do it now is kind of, it's it's very discretionary whether you would, would hold a child back or quote-unquote, socially promote them. Uh, so Democrats introduced a bill, and they discussed it yesterday, that would just totally remove the um, portion where you are held back automatically. And it would leave it to kind of a team, and the ultimate decision would be left to the parent on whether this was the best thing to do for the child. Um, so we asked Governor Sandoval how he felt about that. Um, and probably the takeaway was, I will not compromise is, is his words on making sure that students read at grade level by, by grade three. Um, that's, that's a veto threat, right? That's what it sounds, sounds like. Sounds like it. Yeah. Um, so we're really going to have to see tomorrow what happens with that bill. But what we've seen is kind of some of these ideas are just aired out. And then when it comes to work session, it's drastically uh, watered down. Um, one of the examples is there's a push to remove they abolish the Achievement School District, which converts the lowest performing schools into charter schools. Um, what we saw today in a work session was, uh, sounds like they're going to cooperate and, and keep the Achievement School District in place, maybe modify some processes around that. Um, but it's not going to be the wholesale throw away everything that happened in 2015 kind of thing. I mean, that's what's being talked about a lot. And you, you guys have covered hearings on this too. The Democrats... Seems like they're not as talking as big a game maybe as they were at the beginning with the blueprint and, and, and with reversing all the stuff that the Republicans. Do you get a sense that as we're moving now to these deadlines that they realize that they're going to have to make a deal with, with the governor because he can, he can stop anything uh, that he wants. They're not going to be able to reverse uh, everything uh, and that maybe they can make some kind of negotiation 
to, to get the governor to maybe adjust certain things that were done, but, but all in exchange for something else. Are we starting to hear those discussions yet? Yeah, I think so. But you always have to remember they have to throw some red meat or blue meat or whatever out to their base. Um, so there was a, does not sound very tasty. Does not sound very tasty at all. There was a, a bill today that got passed in the assembly that would remove the prevailing wage threshold. Prevailing wage is kind of a really high minimum wage for public works construction projects. From $250,000 to $100,000, it would remove exemptions for uh, colleges, K-12 schools, and for charter schools. Passed on a party line vote. If it goes to the Senate, it's probably going to pass on a party line vote. You know, one of the governor's big things last session was we need more exemptions to prevailing wages. So schools aren't stuck paying higher wages to construction workers, ergo have less money to spend on teachers and books. So they have, they'll push things like that. There are other bills out there that they're pushing. Um, they've exempted a lot of like the minimum wage stuff. Uh, the pharma one is another one that we've talked about before, mm -hmm. but they have a lot of, um, I guess like progressive benchmarks, yardsticks that they have to keep out there to keep the base happy. But I think as, as we've gone through this week and as we'll see tomorrow, they're going to have a lot of amendments to these bills that were kind of progressive pie in the sky dreams when they got introduced, but they're going to try and find some sort of compromise, some sort of level where everyone can reasonably be happy. Do you think they're going to play like taps at the end of the day for, for, these, for some of these bills that are dying and they'll have like vigils with the progressive groups to, to, to mourn together? They might not, but we can for third house. That's for Third House, which, by the way, is the satire of the, of the legislature that we will certainly have video of up on the Nevada Independent site. You, you alluded to a bill uh, uh, that Megan has done a lot of coverage on, and that, that is the so-called Pharma Bill, which is <clears throat> in some ways maybe the most interesting political fight, since there aren't that many interesting political fights. This one is involving so many people, so many interests. You have unions in favor. You have gaming companies uh, in, in favor. And suddenly, Megan, you had a couple uh, uh, stories since we did, did the last podcast, one about the number of lobbyists that, that Pharma, which is usually not a player in the Nevada legislature, has hired, and also uh, a, a so-called AstroTurf campaign by some nonprofits. Talk about what's going on. This is a great story. Yeah. So, I mean, we kind of had this sense just from the sheer number of bodies in the room the day the SB 265, which is Democratic Senator Ivana Kinsella's bill, was heard. That room was packed. It was hot. It was sticky. You know, there were just a lot of people there. Um, interested in the legislation. And so I think based off of that, you know, we, we sort of had a sense that this would be, you know, a, a sort of hot button bill. I think we knew that, you know, even just reading the, the text itself of what it um, proposes to do, which maybe I should tell people really quickly in case they don't know. Uh, one of the big things it does is puts uh, price controls on diabetes drugs, specifically um, insulin and Biguanides, I might be saying that wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's right. Um, but they're sort of the more, you know, traditional diabetes drugs have been around for a longer amount of time. Um, and Senator Cancel's goal with this is, you know, just to make sure that you don't have these exorbitant price, exorbitantly priced drugs that, you know, people who who need these medications can't afford. So that's one of the parts of the bill. It also requires um, increased transparency uh, from nonprofits, healthcare-related nonprofits. They have to disclose uh, what donations they get from pharmaceutical companies and that information would have to be made public at a state level. Um, and then there's another provision that requires essentially uh, pharmaceutical sales representatives to register as if they were lobbyists and sort of report their activities. You know, are they whining and dining doctors and whatnot? 
Um, anyway, so uh, a lot of the pharmaceutical companies, obviously, actually all of them, um, came out in opposition to the bill, as you might expect. Um, they have some concerns uh, about the bill specifically. You know, they, they think it focuses too much on pharmaceutical companies. It isn't looking at pharmacy benefit managers and insurers who play a role in this process. Um, they think that there's enough transparency, you know, as far as uh, the nonprofit side of things go, um, and that, you know, this licensing process will be sort of overly burdensome. But to that extent, we, we've seen sort of this influx of lobbyists into the building, which is one of the things I wrote about. There's, you know, upwards of 40 lobbyists and they're lobbying for, I want to say it's 26 different companies. Um, you know, there's just so much interest in this bill and it's, you know, a, a pretty big deal because a lot of this hasn't been done elsewhere. This um, pharmaceutical lobbyist sort of registering mechanism has been done in Chicago. But as far as I can tell and as far as anyone else I've talked to can tell, this hasn't been done on a statewide level. So they sort of want to stave it off here because if it happens here, you know, are, are we just the first of, of many um, and other states could follow in our suit. So, what happens in Nevada can happen elsewhere? Yeah, like that. yeah, exactly. Yeah. What, what happens in Las Vegas does not stay in Las Vegas. I don't <laughs> know about right. Carson City. So. <laughs> You're right. They have to have a different model for Carson, Carson City. Yeah. <laughs> so their, their campaign has already started. You mentioned that they're already, um, uh, that they, a lot of them attended that that initial hearing. There was, it was packed and you actually had, I think, a D.C. government affairs guy here uh, from there. But then uh, um, uh, you got a hold of some letters that, 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 that Senator Kinsella got, got started to receive, mm -hmm. and you mentioned about nonprofits. But these are not just ordinary nonprofits. Sure, yeah. So I, I got these letters. Um, there were seven of them from seven different healthcare-related nonprofits, and so I, I did some looking into them, and all of them have received contributions either from Pharma, which is uh, the trade association that represents pharmaceutical companies in the United States, or they've received funding directly from pharmaceutical companies themselves, from, say, like Pfizer. Um, all these organizations give out grants to do certain kinds of research and projects and whatnot. Um, and so all of them had taken funding. Um, and so this sort of speaks to this, this idea put forward in the bill, which is, you know, requiring more transparency from these nonprofits. Because, I mean, even me trying to figure out, you know, how are these groups funded? You know, where's all this coming from? You know, it took me a decent amount of time to try and figure this stuff out. Um, and I'm generally, you know, pretty good with computers and research and that <laughs> kind of thing. Um, but for Senator Cancel, I mean, it kind of underscored, you know, the need for this provision of the bill, which is more transparency from healthcare nonprofits. And again, it's not that anyone doesn't believe that these organizations are doing great things. You know, they, they are patient advocacy organizations. You know, they are advocating for patients' rights and a lot of times do some really great things. But there is this concern, you know, is there an undue influence from the pharmaceutical industry? And without that transparency, there's really, you know, no way to know. Uh, is this getting, are you hearing this talked about? Are, are you, uh, Michelle and Riley, are you hearing this bill and this issue talked about uh, in the hallways? Yeah, because I think all the lobbyists have pharmaceutical clients now <laughs> <That's pretty much. laughs> um, or have some interest in this. So, yeah, it's definitely a big thing. Plus, what's interesting is, is there's this coalition that I don't think a lot of people know about, uh, Riley, that's called the Health Services Coalition, which is like this uh, amalgam of unions and gaming companies. And they were all over the place. Uh, the, 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 this week, and it's kind of this odd alliance because you also have uh, like United Health, this huge uh, insurance company, right? And, and so it's this kind of strange bedfellows, all versus the pharmaceutical industry, right? Yeah, it's it's an interesting dynamic of pharma versus everyone. I believe uh, the Culinary Union has been really big on this. I think they've started running ads correct on the issue. So the the political dynamics of it are really interesting but as Megan got into earlier like the policy dynamics are also really interesting and mm -hmm. it does affect a lot of people uh, price controls on diabetes drugs you know it's a hard thing to you know say you're against so yeah. well 
And it's interesting because the culinary is such a big part of that, them is that health fund they have. And so this stuff accumulates and, and grows and they're trying to keep that cost under control, which is why you see Ivana, the former political director for the culinary, working on this issue. And you saw uh, Bobette Bond, who, who is, who is uh, uh, the big health care maven for the culinary union. She's been pushing this kind of thing for years. She was up here lobbying at it. And you saw her husband, who was detailer, who was the head of the culinary union's parent company. He came up here, and he's going into these uh, meetings. Now, you see, you get the sense that they're trying to elevate this above almost any other issue. You mentioned they're going to do, be doing ads. At some point, uh, you would think the pharmaceutical companies have to do a, a, a counter PR campaign, right? Because they don't want to just be seen by everyone as the black hats. And what, what is the argument they're, they're going to make? You have no doubt. It's the same argument they always make. If you do this, your drugs are going to cost more, right? Mm -hmm. Have you heard that yet, Megan? Yeah. I mean, that's the argument they've been making since, you know, I wrote the, the first story about this bill when it came out. Um, I reached out to them and th I mean, that was the first argument. I think it was the first or second sentence in their statement was, you know, this isn't going to result, you, you think it's going to cap, you know, drug prices, it's going to make costs go down for patients, but it's actually just going to make patients go up. Uh, one of their concerns is this idea of stockpiling mm -hmm. that, you know, if, if there are certain caps, if, you know, there are these 90 day notifications about certain price increases, there will be a stockpiling of drugs, and then you won't actually be able to access the drugs at all. So there's all these sort of unintended consequences, and that's sort of been their big argument with with all of this all along, is that it's not actually going to help the patients, and that a lot of this is actually just going to go and benefit the insurance companies or the pharmacy benefit managers who sort of negotiate between the pharmaceutical companies and insurers. It's a fascinating it's a fascinating issue, I think, and it's, it's probably going to be part of the ultimate end game. And of course, the big question is going to be: Will the governor sign a bill that has price controls? And I can see him going for the transparency part of it, but price controls will be interesting. He's not an ordinary Republican, uh, as we all know. No, it's SB 265. And I, we probably should mention that uh, while people can go on the legislative website to get information, we're doing our own bill tracker. You guys are doing your own uh, bill tracker every Saturday. The people can go on the website and, and look. And this, among other very important bills, we're, we're tracking. People can find out what they say and, and where uh, the bills are. All right, we have a few minutes left. Let's look ahead. Uh, Riley, what riveting speeches are we going to see in the next week before our next podcast? Well, on Monday, we're going to hear from Senator Dean Heller, which will be interesting as he's doing a town hall in Reno with his good buddy, Congressman Mark Amaday. The human uh, shield. Yeah. So there's been like the movement nationally to get Republican senators and Congress people to do town halls. They get yelled at by progressives and it becomes like an MSNBC story, right? <laughs> so it'll be interesting to see how the town hall goes and then what kind of response Heller gets. At the legislature, you know, if they're going to be throwing people out, if there's like people are going to try and sneak in signs. I mean, Mark Amaday got people yelling at him when he walked in the building. The whole speech was pretty calm, given that it's Mark Amaday. Right. Uh, so that'll be a, a fun one to watch. Dina Titus is also coming here next week. Senator Cortez, Catherine Cortez Masto will also be here. But I think the Heller one is one that a lot of people will be watching for. Heller, the most targeted Republican senator in, in 2018. So there'll be a lot of attention, as, as you mentioned. Maybe MSNBC will be in the legislative building. Maybe possible. Uh, so let's, let's talk, guys. The, 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 we're talking about this deadline that is passing uh, uh, this week with the, uh, the, getting the bills out of committee. Um, the next deadline is getting bills out of the actual House, which is a really, really important uh, deadline. Uh, and that's coming up, uh, what, 10 days, Michelle? Is that right? I think it's like the 25th. Yeah. yeah, it's about 10 days away after the first deadline. So what do we expect next week to look like then? I mean, it will be even more intense than this, than this week has been? Different? How? Well, I think we've had um, pretty inconsequential floor sessions this week because every, all the action's happening in the committee, and I think what we're going to see is a lot more um, 
substantial floor sessions and people um, trying to work their issues um, kind of behind the scenes get votes for their bills. You agree, Megan? Yeah, I mean, I think I know, uh, you know, Riley was sitting in there, too, but the assembly today started going through and passing some bills, which we weren't, you know, expecting during the floor session today, getting some of the less controversial bills off their plate. Although, like Riley mentioned, there was, you know, one one big party line vote, at least. Um, So I think we'll see a lot, a lot more of that. But these two are the experts. I haven't been here before, so I'm excited to wait and see what First House Passage is like. <laughs> yeah, I think for people watching at home, First House Passage is a little easier to follow just because you don't have to keep your eye on like six different committees and introduce amendments that you couldn't see until like five minutes beforehand. So you'll have some time to go through like what the bills actually do now. There'll be like a, a one-stop shop. Basically, you just have to send it an assembly to follow along with. We'll obviously be live tweeting and covering all of that. So It'll be interesting, um, and I'm just really happy that both the Senate and Assembly have a lot more comfortable chairs than any of the committee rooms. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's interesting because you mentioned, and we've mentioned this a few times, and if you follow any of these reporters on Twitter, as as you should, when you're tweeting about the committees, a lot of things, it passes on a party line vote. You've said that. And I think it's going to be much more significant when things, if they pass on just a party line vote, I think the assumption can be that's going to be much more difficult to get the governor to sign things if he doesn't get Republican votes. So I'm wondering if next week is, go- is going to be, you know, Paul Anderson's time or, heaven forbid, Michael Roberson's time to start being, being a real factor because they're going to need Republican votes for some of these, right, to get the – because the governor is very unlikely to undermine, right, the Republicans in, in the legislature. So you would think that's something that might happen next week, right? Yeah, and, you know, we saw this today with a bill, the, the pink tax measure that removes sales – or puts a ballot question on for 2018 to remove sales taxes on tampons and uh, sanitary napkins. And they made a couple of amendments to it. And one of them was a Republican co-sponsor, uh, Lisa Krasner, who's an assemblywoman. The bill's being brought by assemblywoman Sandra Howdegy. So I think you're going to see a lot more of that in the coming, uh, I guess, week, because we don't have that much time before First House passage. But they're going to be angling and trying to figure out ways where, you know, where can we find common ground with Republicans on renewable energy or raising the renewable portfolio standard, the whole net metering thing. So there's a lot of bills that have been like solely Democratic sponsored that I think they're, you'll see amendments with Republicans being able to live with them a lot more. All right. We're just about out of time. Uh, any any other band names we want to talk about before we close out the podcast, guys? Any other? What, what do we have? We have Unintended Consequences. Uh, identify Yourself for the Record. Is, uh... <laughs> identify Yourself. No, that would be a great, that's a yeah. great band. That's a great band. And well, uh, I, I want to thank everybody for listening uh, to the Indie Matters uh, podcast. Thanks to Michelle Rindles. Welcome back. You sound great yeah. despite your cold. Megan Messerly and Riley Snyder. Thanks, Carson team. Thanks for all the great uh, work that you're doing. I also want to uh, thank Joey Lovato, who's the guy who puts this whole podcast together and makes us sound halfway decent no matter what uh, we are saying. Uh, jo- Joey is uh, a, a, a student at UNR and is doing a great job for us, and we really appreciate it. And guess what? The biggest news of the week for us is we are now on iTunes. You can find us on iTunes and you can you can subscribe and you can rate us there. Give us as many stars as you can possibly think uh, to give the Indie Matters uh, podcast. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back next week. I'm John Ralston. <laughs>